As we open Mark chapter 11, we find a very familiar passage that is often referred to as the triumphal entry. Usually we read this scripture on Palm Sunday, the weekend before Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And no, Easter is not next weekend and this is not Palm Sunday, but it doesn't matter because as we go through the Bible, I think one thing that does happen when you preach on a very familiar passage that's not on a traditional weekend is that you end up looking at some of the details that don't usually connect to those traditions. And I pray that some of that will come out today because this passage carries not only a powerful account, but it has great significance and some important details that I pray that I can highlight today. But with that all said, let's go ahead and read Mark 11, uh, verse 1 through 12. Here's what the Bible says. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches, i.e. palm branches. Thank you, Book of John which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. This is the word of the Lord, amen. All of Israel, we know, has been waiting, and they're even longing for their Messiah, their King, to come in fulfillment of God's promises, which we find throughout the Old Testament. But we've learned something in the Gospel of Mark, that the expectation of who the King would be was drastically different than what they were seeing in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in my study of Scripture, in my own life experience, and I'm sure that many of you have found this to be true yourselves... I have found that God will often do things that are not only different from what I would expect him to, but at times, if I'm not careful, it can even disappoint me. And this goes to show us that there is a fundamental truth, and it usually is the case at different seasons in our life, and that is this, what God is doing and what we want him to do are often very different. We see this in the disciples' lives, we often, we often see it in our life as well, and it reminded me of a passage that's also very familiar in Isaiah chapter 58, 55 and verse 8, where the prophet says about God, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. God has a plan and his ways are connected to his plan, which are often or always probably greater or higher than we could, we could ever know. 
But here's what I think. As the crowds were swelling around Jesus as he's making his way into Jerusalem, I think the disciples were still hoping for an uprising. I think the disciples were still hoping that the things that Jesus had been telling them, that he's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Like this plan uh, is not something that they seemingly want. And so I think like as the crowds are growing, there's probably something inside them going, well, maybe Jesus will now come to his senses and there will be sort of an uprising and he'll take his rightful place as king and conqueror and all of the other stuff that he's been saying will just go away because that's what we want him to do. I think they were still hoping for this, but we know that's not what happened at all. They believed that he was a king, but he was not the kind of king that they were hoping for in many ways. Now that he is allowing his identity as Messiah and king to be openly declared, I think that there was a disappointment that sort of reached its climax in the disciples' lives, which we are gonna follow through for the rest of the book of Mark, which only highlights the final week of Jesus' life, otherwise known as the Passion Week. Jesus may not be the king that they wanted, but he is the king that they needed, and the same is true for us. Jesus is the king that we need, and maybe we're here today, a couple of us, some of us, maybe all of us are here today, and we're saying to the Lord, Lord, I need you. But us saying that to God is connected to an expectation of what that means. And if God doesn't show up in the way that we're saying that we need him to, then somehow that might disappoint us because we find ourselves in places of life that we never thought we'd be. We're going through things no matter how old we are. In fact, when we get older, we go through more things, (laughs) things we don't want to go through, things we didn't foresee, things that we don't know how to even apply the scripture to. We have the scripture, thank God. We walk with Jesus, praise be to his name, but now we have to learn to appropriate what we have been walking in and knowing about for years to the situations of life that we've never been in before until now. And it's at that time we can choose that we're either gonna be disappointed that God didn't take us out of this or guard us from this, or we can realize that he's doing something bigger and greater, and maybe it is that I just can't see it right now. And so I'm not gonna get disappointed. I'm gonna get expectant for what I wasn't expecting for before because God is good and God is at work, whether I know it or not, whether I see it or not. And I wanna tell you today that God is greater than our temporary and our physical needs. So there's no reason to be discouraged or disappointed. And if you find yourself there today, I'm not patronizing you at all. I'm just encouraging you to look higher because God is doing something greater even in our pain and even in our difficulty. See, Jesus did not come to merely give us a better life. And that's often what we're asking for. I just want to feel a little bit better. I want a little reprieve. I'd love a season of peace. I don't want this to be in my life. I don't want the tension and the turmoil. I don't want the relational conflict. Of course, none of us want that. I'm not praying for that for you today. I am reminding you of his promise that in this world, we will have trials, trouble, tribulation. But Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome everything because I'm above everything. That's what Jesus would say to us today. He didn't come to give us a little better life. He came to give us a brand new life and he came to give us a new world. The Bible says in the end of the book in Revelation that he comes to bring a new heavens and a new earth. And it is greater than all of this that we could experience If you know Jesus, this is the worst it's ever going to get for you. If you don't know Jesus, this is the best that it's ever going to be. Moving right along. (laughs) 
Jesus is the king that we need, but let me highlight a few things about this king that we love so much, things that I think the passage says. The first is this, he is a king that is sovereign. We look back at the text here in verse one, we know that Jesus was staying in Bethany, but on that Sunday before Passover, they set, they set out towards Jerusalem, and as they crested the Mount of Olives overlooking the Kidron Valley, he sends two of his disciples into a nearby town called Bethphage on a special mission, and here's what he says to them. Go into the village. You're going to find a colt. A colt is a young male donkey, and this colt, nobody's ever sat on it, which means it's unbroken. Matthew's gospel actually tells us that there's two animals. It says that there's a donkey and a colt which means that there's a mama and there's a young son. Now that's an important piece, but Matthew's gospel is the, is the only one that mentions it. But Jesus tells them, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> I just love this. What a strange request this is, because here's what we know about Jesus. He's only walked everywhere he's ever gone. He's never asked for a horse. He's never asked for a donkey. And if I was one of the disciples, I probably at this point wouldn't say it out of my mouth, but I would be thinking it to some degree. Why now? Why a donkey now? Why are you asking for something to ride now? But aren't you thankful that the disciples at this point have probably learned not to ask Jesus these kinds of questions? You say, well, Ben, why would you think that? And I'm so glad that you asked. I'm reminded of a couple scriptures. I'm reminded of when they had no food and they were in a desolate place. And Jesus says, what do you have? And they said, well, there's a young boy that's got five loaves and two fish. And he says, bring it to me. It's like saying the Lord has need of it. Bring it to me. And they bring it to Jesus and he multiplies it to feed thousands. They could have said, why? There's nothing. And Philip actually did say that, didn't he? What is this for all of these people? He even said it back to Jesus. And I know he's ashamed now. <laughs> I'm reminded of another passage when they were fishing on the sea and they were catching nothing all day, night. And Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side. He's talking to experienced fishermen and they could be like, you're not a fisherman, rabbi. You don't know what you're talking about, but they throw it on the other side. And what happens? They get a catch that they've never seen before. I'm thinking of the wedding at Cana in the book of John when the wine is all gone at the end of the wedding feast. And Jesus says, I want you to fill up those five gallon, maybe 10 gallon containers with water. And then, I mean, they're thinking, why would we fill them up with water? We're supposed to drink wine at a wedding. He just says, do what I says. And then his mom even says, just do what he says. <laughs> I just love how she gets involved. She gets, mama gets in on that. Just do what he says. And all the mamas in the room said, amen. He changes it into wine. Friend, what I'm saying is they probably learned by now that something special is happening. Go get a donkey. Here's where it's going to be. And if people ask you about it, here's what you say to them. In this story, there's just a lot of details to me when we're thinking about the sovereignty of our king that seem arranged in advance because they are arranged in advance. It's sort of like a very weird illustration that makes sense to me. If I were to tell you today, I couldn't tell you today because Chick-fil-A is not open, but if it was on a Saturday, this illustration worked yesterday. It doesn't work today, but follow me. Imagine it's Saturday. And I tell you, I want you to go to Chick-fil-A on 320th here in Federal Way. And, I want, and you're going to come there and you're going to find a brand new 2023 blue Nissan Pathfinder. I happen to like Nissans. You're going to find a brand new blue Nissan Pathfinder. And it's good, the door's just magically going to be open. The keys are going to be in it. And all of the orders for every member at the church are going to be inside filling up that Pathfinder. 
And you go to Chick-fil-A and you find a brand new blue Nissan Pathfinder and you open the door and you see all of the orders for all the people at the church who never said anything about it, but they're all getting Chick-fil-A. You probably would think that Pastor Ben called Chick-fil-A and Nissan in advance. You would think, I would think that he prearranged this. You wouldn't think that was a miracle. You'd think, who did you call and how did you make this happen? And that's exactly what happens here in Jesus's time. They get to the place that Jesus tells them to go and the colt and the donkey are tied where he says, the people ask them. And when they do, they give them this word back and everything happens as Jesus, it looks prearranged. Friends, because it is. Why? Because we know that God is sovereign. What are we talking about? We're saying God is over it all. Jesus is God's son. He knows what's gonna happen before it happens. That's called omniscience. He has past, present, and perfect knowledge about everything and all things. And this is why we can trust our king. He is a sovereign king. He knows the details. He understands what's going on. He's in control. And I'm not saying like some people theologically believe that he's controlling every single detail, every stoplight, every situation, but in his sovereignty, in his power, in his control, he has also spoken to us through his word. He's allowed human beings in creating them to have choices. That was God's sovereign decree for even us to have human free will to some degree. We understand that God is sovereign, that he's always working. He has a plan. And some of the details actually show us that. For example, the details like the donkey he was riding was a colt that had never been ridden before. Now you probably heard this, but it's quite miraculous to go and take an unbroken donkey that would buck, that would have anxiety with all of these people. And you take a bunch of palm branches and put them in its face. I can guarantee you that that donkey would buck Jesus if it wasn't a miracle. Now you might think, oh no, it wouldn't buck Jesus. It would buck Jesus. It would buck Jesus. But for some reason that doesn't happen. Why a donkey? Was Jesus just saying, hey, I've always wanted to ride a donkey on the Mount of Olives. That would be a great thing. No, the reason that it's a donkey is because in Matthew's account, it tells us that this was to fulfill what the prophets spoke. Look at Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine. The prophet writes, 500 years before the event took place. I mean, that is incredible. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just endowed with salvation. Listen, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, a fowl of a donkey. 500 years. There were no emails. There was no way to make all of this happen unless God was involved. He arranged these types of things because he had a greater purpose that was going on. The disciples couldn't see it. The people in the crowds didn't understand it. God was fulfilling that which he sent his son to do. Another important detail is that kings rode horses in times of war, but they rode donkeys in times of peace. This obviously reveals the first coming was not for him to physically take over and to rule. He did not come to fight. But Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus is coming back on a white horse and he will make war with all those who oppose the kingdom of God. 
It's totally congruent with the theology that there's a first coming of the Messiah as a suffering servant, and there is a second coming of the Messiah as a conquering king. He is who he is coming to be. But aren't you thankful that as he rode that colt into Jerusalem, he was offering peace and he was offering salvation as a sovereign but humble king? That's the one that we worship today. That's the one that we serve. That's the one that we bow to, Jesus Christ is sovereign. Well, what does that mean for us besides just the prophetic fulfillment? It means that if our God is sovereign and our life feels out of control or seems out of control, the only reality is it might seem that way, but it's not that way. We can trust a God that has the whole world in his hands. Come on, he's got the whole world in his hands. I'm not going to lead you in worship today, but I ought to. And you might need that song. Come on, revisit it today. Start singing it. You're going to hum it. You're going to wake up tonight, start humming it. Married people, you're welcome. Now, sometimes you can't hum it. You don't sing it joyfully. You have to sing it because he's got the whole world in his hands because you're going through a thing, you know. You should sing it anyways. You got to sing it anyways. He's sovereign. Say amen. amen. He's also a king that is humble. As we look at verse three, we find something interesting. He says this, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say to them, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. Now this comment feels quite odd to me because we know that God doesn't need anything. Jesus Christ, God the Son, doesn't need anything. Theological terms to make it simple, he is an independent being. He needs nothing. He needs no one. He is complete in and of himself. And to me, it shows the humility of Jesus that he would bow low in a sense where he would draw us into being a part of his plan. I love this. It is definitely not the way that I would do things because I've had plenty of kids, no offense. I've had lots of kids. And I know that when you invite them into things, it usually takes you longer and it makes it a lot harder. But Jesus doesn't care. He wants us to be a part of what he is doing. And I love that. And it shows the humility of our king. I want you to be a part of this. But what king does that? What king chooses the great and the least and says, all can come, all can have a seat at the table, all can be used by him? What king in all of the world does that? Our king. That's the only king that does any of that. It shows his humility. He needed a boat to preach from. He needed some bread and fish to multiply. He needed a tomb to stage a resurrection. He didn't need it in the sense that he couldn't create it or he just didn't have one. It's that he uses us as a part of his plan. And I would say to you today that the Lord has need of it in that sense, many things in our life. The Lord has need of this microphone. The Lord has need of this table. The Lord has need of this chair, of this building, of your car and your house. It's not because he doesn't have it without you. It's because he's inviting you and I to be a part of what he's doing. Maybe you've done this before. You certainly know people where they buy a big house and, and they're like, I'm going to buy this big house and it's a ministry unto the Lord. I'm going to have people live here. I'm going to have people do discipleship groups here. I'm going to have people come and stay here. Missionaries can have a place here. You've heard of this happening. Maybe you've done this before. And so what they did is they bought something that we all have and we all need in a sense, but they said to themselves, the Lord has need of it. So I'm going to take the thing that I seemingly need and I'm going to consecrate it and give it to God. God, and he gets to use it for his purposes. 
Friend, I think that illustration is the exact thing that we need to do with everything in our life. We are owners of nothing. We are stewards of everything. Everything belongs to the Lord. And when he says, I have need of it, he's really talking about our life and not merely our resources. God wants to use everything in our life and about our life for his purposes. And to, in this, I see the humility of the Lord. I truly do. And so what are the things that God has given to us? What resources do we have? It's useful to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9 says that we are co-laborers with Christ as God's fellow workers. What does the Lord want to use in your life for his greater plan? I can't answer that, but you can. The third thing I see is that he is a king that is faithful. To be faithful means that someone is true to their word, to their promises, and to their vows. And as a result of this reality, they are entirely reliable and dependable and trustworthy in all things because they have proved to be so. And here's what we see in this passage, that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises he brought them to Jerusalem like he said he would. He is beginning to fulfill the plan which he's already revealed to the disciples on at least three occasions. And he stayed true to who he was even when the pressure came to try to make him other than what he was. Jesus is entirely faithful from beginning to end. And maybe it is today that we come here or we're watching online and we grew up in a family that was full of empty blessings and empty threats. And it's hard for us to relate to a God who is entirely faithful through and through because it has not been our experience. You know what I'm talking about. You could have grown up in a house where your parents, and maybe if you are one of those, you can stop today. Amen. There's hope for us in the house. But somebody said, if you don't stop hitting your sister, and if you don't start, stop sassing to your mom or your dad, then I'm gonna send you to another country. I don't know what the punishment would be. But it was probably quite severe, one that you may not be able to fulfill at the end of the day. And somebody starts to, the parent starts to threaten the child. And then they do this, they do the holy count. One, one and a half. They keep going, the kid keeps going. I wanna tell you, it's not gonna happen this way, people. Three, Four, and then what do they do? They freak out, ah, you know, and that, that only teaches them they know how to push your buttons, by the way. <laughs> Maybe we have also grown up in a home where somebody promised us things were gonna be this way. Hey, next week we'll do this. Hey, this year we'll go on a vacation. Hey, we'll go out and do that thing. Hey, I'll help you fix that. And it never came through. So we have empty threats and empty promises. I wanna tell you today, God is nothing like that. Whether that's how we've been or how people around us have been, he is nothing like that. He is entirely faithful. But it could be that we've been conditioned by the lack of faithfulness in the world around us. And so sometimes we question God, even though he is entirely otherly and not like us in that way. When he says it, friends, it is true. When he says he's gonna do it, he's going to do it. I read soberly when I think of the Exodus story. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, if you don't let my people go right now, if you don't let my people go, the angel of death is going to come and the firstborn is going to die. That is a sober story. But what I know is that God did exactly what he said he would do. I read that with sobriety because whether it's a warning or it's a blessing, God is entirely faithful. I mean, we only focus on the blessing part. But friend, how many of you know you need the warnings too? 
because he's faithful in every which way you can imagine God is faithful, whether it's in my favor or not. And I would say it always is, even in the warnings. God is faithful. Jesus is a faithful king. Everything around us changes. Everything around us is always going one way or the other, but he doesn't lie. And we can build our lives on his word, on his plan, and on his promises. Aren't you thankful for that today? This is our King. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love talking to people as they get older and they become acquainted with the ways of God even more so, and they're still plugged into the Lord and they say, God is faithful. They say, God is faithful. I've lived with Jesus, walking with him for 50 years. God is faithful. There's something that hits you just right here when someone that's known Jesus for 50 years says he is faithful. It gives hope to those that are even younger. You're like, I can believe him because I'm looking at a group of people that have trusted him for twice as long as I have. And when they say it, you feel it. Jesus is a faithful king. And finally, He is a king that is invitational. He is a king that is invitational. Listen to what it says here in verse eight. As the colt came back with the disciples and they put a coat on the colt and he's riding it into Jerusalem. He's on the road going into the city. Many spread their coats in the road and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Only John's gospel tells us that it's palm branches. If we didn't have John's gospel's detail, we would have leafy branches. All of your traditions on Palm Sunday, you would just bring leafy branches and wouldn't be that an interest, that'd be an interesting Sunday. We can't call it Palm Sunday anymore. <laughs> it's fu- it'd be funny to me if everybody showed up with different branches and, and you could tell who read the book of John. You're like, well, I've only got through Mark, so this is all I had. They just come with leaves. Amen. Don't judge people. That's what I'm trying to say. They had cut these from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means Lord save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And it seems like uh, just the next two verses sort of cut off where Jesus goes into the temple and then goes back to Bethany. It's very unimpressive how this sort of ends. But Luke 19 gives us a little bit more. And here's what it says in verse 39. In addition to this, as you put the gospel accounts together, you get a little bit more. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a, a messianic title, so to speak. Son of David, Hosanna, Lord save now. They're declaring him Messiah, King openly. And the Pharisees are seeing this and it's enraging them. And they say, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says something that is so profound. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Bad joke. You don't want the first rock concert to be because people didn't sing. you didn't get that, it's because you won't. (laughs) On this day, this was when the lambs were being chosen for the Passover festival. And it's fitting that the Lamb of God was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, offering peace and salvation. He did not come as the Lion of Judah. He did not come as the conquering king that they were hoping for. 
And in my estimation, there were three types of people in the crowd that day as Jesus rode into the city. The first is those who surrendered. They laid down their garments, their branches as a sign of surrender. I've got some extremely real palm branches today. Do you believe me? Amazon sells the real thing, don't they? They were laying these down with their coats. So what happens is they lay down their coats. It's surrender as Jesus is riding on it. But those that didn't have any outer garments, I mean, for me, I've got one coat and then it's over. So they were cutting palm branches and they were laying them down. And this, in a sense, was saying, we're surrendering. Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was the part of the group that was surrendering to him and what was happening in that moment as they were singing this, saying this. It's Psalm 18. It's one of the Psalm of Ascents that the pilgrims would sing as they came into Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals they were coming to worship God through. We also see in the crowd, there were those who observed. I think there were just a lot of people who were standing around just observing. They weren't saying anything. They weren't doing anything. They were just there. They were just there. They were observant. Well, let's see how this pans out. Let's see what goes on. Let's see what comes of this. There's no palm branches. They're keeping their coats on. They're just watchers. And the third group of people are those who resisted. Jesus was openly declared as the Messiah. And here you have the Pharisees who come and want Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And he says, I will do no such thing because you don't understand what's happening right now. If I tell them to be quiet at this point, in this moment, yes, before Jesus would silence people that wanted to declare him openly, he would say, go to the priest. He would say, don't say anything about this. It seemed kind of strange, but it wasn't his time yet to be openly declared as the Messiah, but the time has now come. So Jesus will not silence them at this point. And he tells them, he's saying, this is a Kairos moment. This is a time that cannot be held back. You don't know what you're asking for. I cannot rebuke them from singing this and saying this because all of creation groans in expectation for the moment that you're in, but they couldn't recognize the day of their visitation. And isn't that the saddest thing? In Luke chapter 19, it says, as Jesus is right there on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Kidron Valley, he stops and it says, Jesus begins to weep. And Luke tells us that he has a vision 38 years in advance where the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is about to take place. And Jesus says this, you did not recognize the day of your visitation. You do not realize that your king is coming to you offering peace and salvation. This is the time to get right with God. And he says, you are missing it. Can you imagine missing a historical paramount moment like this. And yet we are living in an age and a time and a dispensation where Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come, bow your knee and confess that I am Lord. This is the time where we can bow to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But everyone in the days ahead will forcibly bow to the conquering King coming on a white horse. That day will come, but now is the time for the great grace of God to be released on planet earth. And it was inaugurated in this moment and not many saw it when it happened. They saw what happened, but they didn't understand what was actually happening. 
Another thought that I had was that those that were surrendering, those that were laying down palm branches, those that were laying down their coats, it seems like all of them are surrendering and that's what we would think because symbolically is, this is what it means. But I know that in the crowd, and I want to share this with you, so follow me. This is the BIV, Ben's International Version here. It's a little bit of a speculation, but I think it bears out. I think it's true that as some people were putting down these palm branches, they were still hoping for Jesus to be the king that they wanted him to be. So their surrender was only as good as Jesus doing for them what he wanted them to. Now we can understand in pain and oppression and difficulty, we all go through it. We can understand that as we seek to pave the way for Jesus, or could we say, pray the way for Jesus to move in our life, take the pain out of my life, take the oppression away. I'm longing for you to come like the saints of old. We've all longed for Jesus to come. Maranatha, so come Lord Jesus. It says in the days of revelation and tribulation, that this is what the martyrs will be crying out. When are you coming, O Lord? When are you coming? Because that day ends all oppression in his second coming. But there were those on that day that were putting down the palm branches and their coats, and it looked like they were surrendering, but they were only surrendering as long as they got what they wanted. So as long as he does, and you know the saddest part of the story, which we can easily gloss over, and and often on Palm Sunday, it happens because we come to celebrate. We come with palm branches, and Easter's coming, and it's an exciting time because we're looking backwards. But as we look backwards, don't miss something about the text. And that is this, when Jesus gets into Jerusalem, he gets off the colt, he looks around in the temple, and then it says what? He just goes back to Bethany. Why? because everybody that was swelling around him, everybody that were putting the palm branches down and surrender to him, all of a sudden what they thought would happen in the city of Jerusalem did not come to pass. He did not rise up. It did not go the way they wanted to. Everybody left. And I bet you many of them were like, you know what? This is just Jesus of Nazareth. That's who this is. He's just a prophet. He's just a man. They probably picked up their palm branches. I could use these at home now. And they might've taken those with. Now that's the part you're not gonna hear about on Palm Sunday, but I bet you, because even though they laid them down, their hearts were not fully surrendered to whoever he was. And here's my point. He may not have been the king that they wanted, but he was the king that they needed. Jesus didn't come to conquer. Jesus came to atone for sin. Jesus was preparing for something greater that they couldn't see. And here's what I'm suggesting to us today, that can you agree that oftentimes we can be like that? Even though we look back on the story and we know what God was doing and we know what he did and we know what that means and we know that he's coming and all of it's clear to us, but we still can be the same way. We can still surrender, but our surrender is only as good as his response to what I'm asking him to do in my life. And Jesus is calling us to a type of surrender where all we get maybe is just him. And if we get just him, friends, would you say that's enough? Give me Jesus. That's all that I need and it's all that I want. I want to come back and live in first love. And if, if he's all I get, it's, he's all I want. He's all that I want and he's all that I need. He is the king that we need. The world often has a very 
disdained view of Jesus. There's all kinds of theology that talks about how you can get Jesus and everything else. And even coming to Jesus, you need to not only surrender him, but you need to be good. And they just stain who he is. No, no. Jesus came offering peace and salvation because there's nothing we could do. Jesus came as a humble king because we can't come to his level. He had to come to ours. Jesus came offering us life eternal, not just freedom in this life, but a brand new life and a brand new world. And this is what's supposed to instill hope and expectation and life in the people of God to want more, to long for more. And that even if I have to go through trials and tribulations, I don't give up on Jesus because he's done something so profound, so great. It's broken the shackles of sin and shame and hell and bondage and the grave. Paving the way towards Easter, Resurrection Sunday. None of them got it. He was alone. He yielded with all the pressure and all the pain and all the difficulty and all the sin that was on him. He did it alone. Eventually they deserted him. But that's the point. In our sin, every sheep has gone astray. Every single one. And that's why we needed a shepherd that never would. That's what we need. And he's always that. He's sovereign. He's humble. He's faithful. But he's also invitational. He's not a king that will coerce us. He's a king that invites us. We don't have to come to Jesus. There's a day coming where that that will occur. But right now, we get to come to Jesus. (laughs) We don't have to surrender our lives. We get to surrender our lives. This is an invitation, but it's a greater invitation than we have ever known. There's nothing like Jesus, and we cannot afford to be resistant. We cannot afford to be an observer, and we can't afford a pseudo-surrender. So when I see Palm, I didn't mean to mess with your Palm Sunday, by the way. We'll celebrate when that time comes around. But aren't you thankful that he is the king that you need? We've been in a time of, uh, if you're new to the church or you just didn't happen to be here last week, we, we had a men's conference and there really was a time of surrender from the men. We had a women's conference this last week and I was talking to Pastor Susanne and I felt that from what I was understanding, there was really, it wasn't just like surrender, just come to the altar. It was like, it was like surgery. It was like God was doing a work of the heart. He was healing deep things that only Jesus can touch. And he doesn't stop. He starts and then he completes that work. And there are many things about it. I would tell you that there's, there's an awakening happening in our church right now. And if you don't know it, I'm telling you, jump in the river, friend. They say, what are you talking about? I'm saying yield to Jesus and ask him for the awareness of his presence because it is happening. We were here as a staff on Thursday And I just canceled everything else. And I talked about something specific to me. And we just worshiped and we got on our faces before the Lord because we need a fresh touch. We're not professionals. We're worshipers. We're not special. We're sons and daughters. So we got on our face in this room and we prayed over every chair. We prayed over every family. We prayed over every person because you, we need a fresh touch of Jesus 
to love him like we've never loved him, to see him like we've never seen him before. You say, Ben, I know Jesus. I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying you need more of Jesus. And I was thinking about this as we close. Um, my wife had surgery on Tuesday. I apologize if I brought this up too much, uh, if that offends you, but it's where the Dixon family is living. So my message is over, so here we are, okay? <laughs> but... Um, I had to wait in the waiting room. They told me it'd be three hours. It ended up being five. I know what anxiety feels like, you know, but I so appreciate our medical professionals and all that. And I told our doctors, the people that were there, I was like, you know, I'm going to be praying for you. And there are hundreds of people praying for you and her. And the doctor said, oh, we won't say no to prayer. I said, game on, buddy. Game on. So, um, I went into the waiting room. The surgery waiting room, as many of you know, is a very... It's a tense place. It's an anxiety-filled place. Some people were trying to distract themselves. They're just waiting. Some people were trying to sleep. Good luck. Uh, they were trying to sleep. Uh, some people were just, you know, just shaken, kind of like me. I I'm a tapper. I'm always go, go, go. You, you probably know that. But, um, and so I was in there for a long period of time, and then I get to the three-hour mark, and she ain't out, and I'm not getting a phone call, and I don't like this right now. So they called me and they said, hey, everything's going good. And I go, yeah, but it's three hours. So like, when's this gonna, you know, when can I see my wife? <laughs> Could you just let me know? And so they said, yeah, it's gonna take longer. And so anyways, after it was all said and done, we realized that the fracture, the one fracture was worse is what the surgeon said. But he took the extra time to make it right. And as a result, she's twice as swollen, but she's recovering and doing, you know, each day is a day of recovery. It'll take a long time. But the Lord, I went to this other recover, uh, waiting room and the Lord spoke to my heart. And uh, I didn't hear his voice, but I just, it was the prompting of the Lord, write out every scripture on healing that you can find. So I just, by memory, now I didn't pop up a concordance, but I just, by memory, I started writing every scripture that wasn't contextual. It was like definitely broad of who he is and what he's like. And so I went through the Old Testament, everything I could remember, and then I went to the New Testament, and they're fresh on me right now. I could start quoting them to you right now if you want, but I won't. But I started writing them all out. I wrote them. New American Standard Version, I wrote them all out. Just, just started filling up the pages, filling up the pages. And by the time I got done, I was like, well, I, I wrote them. I might as well pray them. It was like the Spirit of God was prompting me. I want you to pray them. And as I'm praying them, he's like, I want you to say them in every room of your house. I want you to walk through your home and I want you to speak the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. Not my little slap on the back, I hope it gets better, but the Word of God. If it's the Word of God, then the power of God is attached to His Word. He's God, Amen. It's his word. We're gathering around his word today. There's power in his word. I wouldn't be up here talking to you. Salvation has come to us. Healing come, deliver. And so I started praying that and I realized I had a revelation for our church while I was there. And I was thinking about this message, actually. We're all in the waiting room, whether we know it or not. We're waiting for God to do something. But how we steward our waiting matters. How you feel that time where God hasn't done something and you're asking him to, you're believing him for, how we steward that time. We can give it to entertainment. We can give it to anxiety. We can give it to fear. We can give it to unbelief. Or friend, we can start writing out that word of God and we can get aggressive and we can pull down strongholds that want to drag us into lesser things and we can start contending for God. Wouldn't you rather be there than all of the other options that are available to you? And so I want to encourage you today that whatever you're waiting for God to do, use the waiting room in the way that he would call you to. 
And if you do that, you will find the blessing of his presence at the very minimum. And that's what washes over me. That's what's washing over us. That's what's washing over us as a church. There is a river that never runs dry. Would you stand to your feet as we close today? There's a river running through this church today. Somebody you're here and your life has felt like a landfill where people in your family and your friends, they've dropped all of their garbage onto you and you used to be able to handle that, but it's become overwhelming and the Lord wants to take that burden off of you today. You feel just dumped on and even though you may have asked for it in the past season because you were a capable counselor, you need a refreshing work of the spirit because it just is too much for you today. Your life is not a landfill. Your life is a recycling center. But the Holy Spirit has to be at work in order for that to have, it, to have its full work in your life. But I just felt that there was a burden today that some of you just, you just feel like it's too much. And I'm telling you by the word of the Lord, that's going to come off you as you come to Jesus. Somebody else, I saw a person today with chains of addiction tying you up. And there was a time where you tried to untie them and pull those chains off you, but you've grown weary without any freedom. And someone prophesied this in our church that God is doing a finishing work. He's doing a finishing work and he's giving you the strength and the second wind to begin to untie those chains because he's giving you the power and the strength to do it by his precious blood and his freedom will come to you today. He will help you unravel those chains and break free. And lastly, the Lord is doing surgery. The Lord's doing surgery. He's doing healing, deep healing. There's some forgiveness that needs to come out. I can tell you this, whenever I've experienced revival, stuff starts to come up, stuff that you want to keep down. It comes up because it needs to come out. And when it comes out, there's more that God wants to fill. So don't be surprised when things start to come up. Even if old things start to come up, I've already forgiven them. I've already dealt with that. No, friend, it's coming up because God's going to do a deeper work. He's done it through Jesus, but we appropriate what he's done. Let me pray for you today. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus. I thank you that you are doing a healing work in our hearts. You are the king that we need. You are God almighty. You are all knowing. You are all powerful. You're all loving. You're merciful. You're kind. You're patient with us. And I pray today, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would do a deep work. And as we come to receive prayer or even as we fellowship, whatever we might do, I pray that it would be a response that you're provoking us to give to you as a form of worship. We ask that you administer to us. Holy Spirit, pour out your presence upon our church today. Thank you that it is drawing from a river that does not run dry. There's a fountain of living water that's springing up here and it doesn't stay on this property you're wanting to baptize us fresh in a way where everywhere we go, there you are, and we're aware of your presence. And I pray that over us, Father, healing over us. Thank you for someone last night who was just healed in worship, and they sent the testimony this morning that a mighty healing occurred. We pray for that healing today in Jesus' name over any of us that need physical healing. Let your testimony rise in our church. 
Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.